0: The first application is a policy kit. And so I guess it's said, Paul kit. It doesn't sound right to me, but that's how I say policy, policy. What's your policy? Okay, so Paul, Paul kit. I guess that's how you say it, but that doesn't sound right. I'm sure other accents say it a lot differently. Anyway, Paul kit dash, uh, I think KDE dash agent. Yeah, that's what it is. So Paul kit, to talk about Paul kit, KDE agent, one must first talk about Paul kit. I don't think I've talked about Paulkit before. Um I, I I imagine it's probably more like in the library section of Slackware, the L the L um s- software series. So I'm going to just talk about it here. Maybe I'll talk about it again later, I don't know. But Paulkit is a it's almost, almost, and this is not what it is. I'm saying it is almost, it is similar to, you might think of it as, pseudo for your system. It's not. It is That's not correct. But let's say that it is for a moment. It's it's more or less pseudo, but not for you. It's for your system. So, as in as much as a computer can make decisions about permissions, um, in that sense... That's what Kit provides. It provides your system the ability to determine whether or not a, a a certain user or a group of users are allowed to or is allowed to run a or yeah to 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 access a a certain uh, function of an application, and it can get pretty pretty detailed. And to see that, uh, honestly, there's not a whole lot to sort of to witness that from from the Paulkit-KDE agent. The Paulkit KDE agent has a uh, a little desktop file in auto start. It's got some licensing files and a systemd service, not that that's actually being used on this system, but it is there in case you install systemd on your Slackware box. Uh, there's a libexec exec uh, file. So that's kind of like in user lib64. So that's that's the agent itself, really, uh, or that's the closest thing to an executable that will get uh, a desktop file in applications. That's interesting, didn't know about that one, to be honest. And then finally, uh, actually, so does that mean that I could, no agent, agent, no, I, I don't think that's anything. Okay. um And then a notification, a knotifications um, configuration file. So that's all that's present in the Paul kit KDE agent. So technically that's all that needs to be said about this. But like I say, I, I'm going to talk a little bit about what Paul Kit is just to contextualize this, and that may mean that I repeat myself later if I've forgotten that I've already talked about Paul Kit when we come up across Paulkit um probably in the l series so uh Paul Kit, as I've said, gives permissions to applications and to 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 get a little bit more insight into that, what you can do is look in user share pollkit dash one and you'll find that there are two directories there actions and rules.d. In the rules.d file, there are rules. There are things that describe um, the, the different sort of actions that you could take on your system and how, how much a- access you have to those things. So, for instance, if I look at ten dash enable dash u power dash suspend, see that it's a pull kit add, dot add rule uh, function action subject if action ID equals u power suspend um, action ID equals or 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 hibernate, uh, then subject is in group power? In that case, return PaulKit result, yes. That's pretty self-explanatory if you think about what I just said. Like, it's obviously looking at a signal being sent or a call being made to PaulKit, and it is saying, hey, if that call is being made to something with the the name org.freedesktop.upower.suspend or org.freedesktop.upower.suspend, you power dot hibernate. Then oh, and the subject, the the subject of the call is in the group power. Then yes, it's allowed. Yes, permit that. So that's a rule. There are other kinds of files called actions, and those action files are uh, XML files stored in user share palkit one actions, and they're named for their project org. For instance, the first one on my system, org.blueman.policy. So I'm going to, I'm going to actually grep lang equals backslash quote en in, in that file, and then pipe that through most. And that way I'm just seeing the stuff that I can actually parse with my, with my single language ability uh so it says description xml lang equals en of course i've got i didn't i probably sh- could have just chose j- j- i should have chosen one en there's actually two ens en underscore gb en underscore au so i have a bunch of doubles here but that's okay um i guess even simpler no that wouldn't okay anyway um so configure bluetooth network that's a description configuring network requires privileges. Launch DHCP client. Launching DHCP client requires privileges. Launch PPP daemon. Launching PPP daemon requires privileges. So you kind of get the... you're getting probably the, the gist of this file just from that description. These are... these are descriptors of what you might be able to do... Interface with the Bluetooth the blue man Bluetooth um, uh, application, whatever way you're you're interacting with it and something is reading from this file and 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 catching when you try to do something with Bluetooth that for instance, might require escalated privileges so I, I guess in a way it's almost like the inverse of sudo it's like the system, it's the door upon which sudo might go a-knocking, so for instance if you're trying to uh, rf-kill through your, you set the rf-kill state of your of your bluetooth transmitter on your laptop then when you attempt that, that triggers a, a poll kit action and it, it pulls from this xml file pr- it presents you with a a message saying hey you can't do that without without extra privileges. So if you're not in the right group, you're going to get that error message. If you are in the right group or if you escalate privileges, whatever whatever the situation might be, then Polkit would presumably let you in. Now that's that that isn't uh in in this file. This is uh this is just it looks to me like this is um these are action ids yeah so this is actionid org.bluman.network setup for instance so if 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 something is making a call to a function with that with the property org.bluman.network.setup then these descriptions these policies are going to be echoed potentially back to you in the in the event that you're trying to do something that requires more permission than what you have. So that's what PaulKit does. It it monitors uh what you're trying to do with various applications. It looks at who you are, who who's making the call, who's who's attempting to 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 use this application in some specific way. And obviously through the magic of of XML and rule files, you can have a bunch of different methods of interacting with with something you can really get down to to uh to really just the barest sort of granularity the specificity of of just trying to uh you know s- s- turn off the bluetooth uh, chip or the you know um i don't know what other things are there here uh, too many too many things in my scroll history to look but yeah there's a lot of things that might have like uh, G parted, for instance. Are you trying to format a disk, uh, or or you know look at look at um, backlight helper charge threshold helper uh, smart um, policies KCMK wallet? That's kind of an important one. Set GConf settings, uh, install a new flat pack, and so on and so on. So lots, lots of different things that you could that that an author of an application could potentially um, restrict based on sort of the risk that they think uh, that 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 policy um, that policy involves or, or that 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 interaction involves. So that's PaulKit. I don't think I have a whole lot more to say. Oh, yes I do. Really quick. So polkit polkit doesn't know what what calls are being made to what application magically like these these properties org.blueman.network.setup that sort of thing. Th- those aren't those aren't just generated sort of by magic and the the, the way that, that those get identified are through the polkit library itself which you would include there's a bunch of header files in user include paulkit-1 and you will learn we'll see those again later like i say in the l series the library series we'll see those we probably won't go through them cuz they're kind of boring but they have names like paulkit action description paulkit authority paulkit uh details paulkit error paulkit identity paulkit permission and so on. A uh, subject, Pulkit subject. Remember in the one rule there was that subject ID or uh, user is in group or whatever. Subject is is in group, Uh, so important important little elements there. You include that into your into your code, and suddenly signals being sent back and forth between your code from from user space that they get tagged with little uh, descriptor descriptors, and those descriptors can be parsed by Polkit. So that's how it all fits together. The developer uses Polkit headers when the application is running. The desktop is able to interface or the user is able to potentially interface with that application and when they do they may or may not trigger well they they do trigger a a poll kit review of what's of what is being attempted let's talk about power devil not power devil, like developer but but devil like a devil uh you know like goat horns and sign of the beast and all that other good stuff devil so power devil is a is the um system setting panel the it's a kcm module so we we know what those are kde configuration module module and the Uh, The way that you see it is in your system settings. You go to, I think, it's probably called power or something. Power energy saving. Of course it would be called energy saving, not power. Uh, So if you go to energy saving, then there is energy saving on AC power, on battery, on low battery. So you can set how your computer behaves under different uh, power sources. So this is obviously... Really, really useful on a laptop, but it, it's it's handy everywhere. If you're ever, th- you know, if you're if you're ever sort of, I don't know, watching a video, and so you haven't, if you, you haven't, you know, you haven't moved your mouse or you haven't typed or anything, because you're just watching a video on your computer for a long time, like a movie. Um, sometimes, in a, in a fresh computer that hasn't been. Uh, m- mangled by you yet, um, its settings often just default to, hey, after, you know, like 10 minutes of inactivity, dim the screen or go to sleep. If you need to change that because you're regularly watching videos that are 12 minutes long, then, or, or longer, you know, over the 10-minute threshold, for instance, then you might need to, to change that. And you could go to Power Devil or actually what it's sort of labeled, Energy Saving... Also, there's a subheading of power management, though, so there is that as well. I, whatever we're calling it, uh, energy saving is, is what came up, you know, for me when I typed in power in my uh, system settings. Power goes to energy savings. If I click on that, then I have the, the different tabs. So you can change the, the settings there. You could say um, switch off the screen after 10 minutes or uh, when power button is pressed, prompt a logout dialogue don't just shut down don't just begin shutting down or do just start shutting down you know whatever you prefer uh when you're on battery when do you when do you want those aren't really active for me because i'm not not on battery but those are your options those are your kinds of options within power devil and that as you can imagine has a bunch of um in the package there are some libraries .so files and there are Paul kit policies, uh, governing whether or not you can do certain things. So that's kind of a nice little connection to what we were just talking about. Um, and let's see anything else. No, not really. I mean, I think there's, yeah, there's like a desktop file, you know, stuff, stuff to help you just launch it from your, uh, KDE menu, your K menu. So if you do type in, if you go to your K menu and type in power then eventually down here at the bottom I have uh, energy saving and you can go to that and it'll open up it'll it'll open up system settings straight to that module poxml it's not really poxml it's poxml but poxml sounds nerdly. so PoXML is a Git text related tool developed for KDE. That's why it's in the KDE software series. And it is a translation tool for DocBook. Now, if you've listened to me for a very long time, you will know that I'm a huge fan of DocBook. I don't use it half as much as I used to. Um, Just as recently as, I guess, three years ago, four years ago, I was living in DocBook quite happily at work it was a great little time uh, because i just got to do docbook all day it was great um and before that i'd been doing docbook for fun as uh, just personally these days i don't get to live in it at work i, I get to still use it of course personally for fun but at work um, the the workflow has changed because i changed departments so don't get to do as much docbook anymore but i love it it's a great system and I love it for its explicitness. It is very clear about what elements are what, what. What text is is what element. It it is there is no question whether a list is a list. Uh, whether a sub list, you know, a list embedded in another list, is a list embedded in another list. It, it's it's there, the the code is is very clear. There's there are code code blocks and and beyond that, it's not just hey this text is code. There's There's a semantic uh, context to things as well. So not only can something be code, but it could be possibly user input, or or it could be something appearing on a screen, or it could be a program listing, like code listing, Uh, all kinds of different things. So... It, it's a great system because of its verbosity, and that is also its greatest weakness. The, the, the doc book is, it, it's, it, it's XML, it is a schema of XML, and, and for that reason, it, it is very verbose. The tags that it uses are very long. Something, for instance, something as simple as a paragraph. HTML, as you may know, uses left angle bracket P right angle Bracket. That's the tag in DocBook. That's left angle bracket P A R A right angle bracket. So same functional tag, a lot longer, four times as long. So that's um that is a a reason that a lot of people don't tend to love DocBook, and and another reason I think uh, I suspect even more of a reason because, I mean, your IDE is going to fix that for you anyway, right? Whatever you're using to do doc book, it's going to fill all that stuff in for you and autocomplete tags and stuff like that. Not a big deal, really. What I suspect is that people don't like the strictness of XML. If your document doesn't build, if it's not correctly structured, then it will not build. It's your job to go in and find the mistake. Why? Why is it not correctly structured? Oh, did I put a paragraph outside of a section without starting a new section yeah I guess that would be a problem okay well let me move that paragraph into the section or move the section tag functionally down so it can be it can be frustrating it can be really frustrating Uh, and certainly in a coding environment it can be potentially really bad if, if you don't do a test build before you push your change to the Git server you may have just broken the build if your documentation is being built alongside with the software. Not that I've ever done that before. Um, so there's... That was sarcasm. Uh, so there is a, a lot of, I think, really significant use case for DocBook in the real world. And it, it is kind of falling out of favor, I think, for the for the more forgiving formats. Ideally ASCII doc, but, but it doesn't have quite the momentum that Markdown has. So um, Markdown, you know, whatever right? As I say, structure is better than no structure. So whatever form that takes, ultimately, structure is good for your your documentation, for your code, for your text, because that can be parsed. But focusing on docbook, that can really be parsed, because there's not just structure, there's There's context, there's semantics, there's, there's a whole, there's, there's, there's a lot of data that you can parse there. Now, let's say you've written a bunch of documentation and you decide that you want to distribute that documentation to a bunch of people who don't speak English and you want them to be able to translate the documentation for you. You can do that. You can send them the documents. They can re-implement the document and that'll, 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 Theoretically work, but translation can be managed, as we've seen in previous episodes, by a, a system called Gettext, and you can generate translation files that look for strings in in documents that are that are meant to be user facing. Extract those strings, present it to a translator, and then that translator can. D- rewrite the the string and 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 send it and save it back to the documentation project as a translation file they don't have to worry about sort of the structure of the file they just have to look at the strings and translate what they read well po xml is a, a, a tool chain to make that really simple here i'll show you so i'm going to open up a, a sample a, a test document i'll call it test.xml and i'm going to start with uh bracket, question mark, XML, space version equals, quote, 1.0, close quote, question mark, close angle bracket. Next, I'm going to make this an article. Article is a simple doc book um, document type. There's article, there's book, I think there's another one. So, bracket article, space, XML in S, that's a XML namespace, equals, HTTP colon slash slash doc book dot org slash ns for namespace, slash doc book, close quote and I think yeah I think that's Basically, all I need. Version equals five dot zero. I guess we could do XML colon lang equals en for English. That way, uh, you know, for translation stuff. I guess that probably is significant. Uh, And then I'm going to do an info block. So that's bracket info, close bracket, bracket title, close bracket, and I'll call this article doc book document. Close title, close info. All right. Every article needs a section. I think I don't have my doc Book in front of me, my, my doc book guide, the TDG. I don't have it in front of me, it's just about, I don't know, two meters away from me, but that's two meters too far. Uh, just right there, back on my bookshelf. I can, I can see it. Okay, um, so angle bracket section, close angle bracket. I could do like a title. Of, of the section but i'm not going to i'll just do actually maybe i have to i'm not sure all right i'll do no i don't want to do a title and I'll, t- I'll, I'll i won't explain why but just trust me uh para and then hello world close para close section close article we're done it's 15 lines i told you doc book was verbose it is it's it's verbose i mean what can you do but like i say it's kind of kind of part of the beauty of the system okay so, we got a Hello World article here in DocBook. Now, processing DocBook is pretty simple um, after a fashion. Uh, you have to get DocBook. XSL sheets. You need those to to process it. And then you can use XSLTProc. There are lots of other ways to process DocBook. I feel like we even covered a couple in the past. There were some tools going from DocBook, I think, and in some, I think it might have been like Linux utils or something. But anyway, XSLTProc is the one that I typically sort of default to. uh, And the 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 thing that you need to give it is an xsl style sheet and then the xm the xml you want to transform that's what xslt proc is it is a it's an xml transform tool so xslt proc and then i i just copied my docbook um folder my docbook style sheets to this test directory for 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 um just to keep it simple, so that's docbook-xsl-version-number-slash-html-slash-docbook.xsl. So, this is a docbook-xsl in an HTML folder, so I am transforming it into HTML. What am I transforming? Well, test.xml. Hit return, and I get output, and and it's HTML. It is HTML, head, metatype, blah, 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 close head, open body, um div class, uh, div class, where's the title? Somewhere in there, there's a title, there it is, div class title page, uh, h2, why did I give it a h2? I wanted really, I would have... I would have made that an H1 personally, so I, I don't care for that. Anyway, um, yeah, there's there's a document here, and it's it's an HTML rather than X in, in rather than XML. And of course, I wrote everything. I wrote that document in XML, so that's sort of the advantage of of having things in XML. You can use other tools to transform them to process them. Of course, you can you can do the same thing with lots of other formats. You can use Pandoc for practically everything for instance not a big deal but it's a thing and it's, it's not you know it's not that complex okay great that there's a proof of concept not a problem how do we get that that document docbook document hello world how do we get that translated into the hands of our translators so that they can take the strings and translate them for us well the way that we could do that is generate a po file or i think it might be a pot file technically i kind of forget but um you can do info get text, and the third section in there is PO files, the format of PO files. And so th- there's all the information you need. A PO file is made up of many entries, many each entry holding the relation between an original untranslated string and its corresponding translation. It gives samples. It's a really well-written document. It's got examples. It kind of tells you... Uh, how to generate it, and so on. But you don't have to do any of that. There's a tool in this tool chain called xml2po. Or is it, yeah, uh, xml2po. Uh, And I think I'll just do a dash dash help because I don't remember what it wants from me. Uh, Yeah, okay, so it just wants xml2po and then the name of the document that I want to sort of transform into a po. So that's test.xml in this case. Oh, that did not, that did not work. Um... How about, there we go, xml to pot. That's that's what it is. So xml to pot space test XML dumps out a bunch of text into your terminal. It looks like a PO file to me. So I'm going to rerun that, but I'm going to redirect the output to, um, let's do Esperanto.pot. Now I'm going to open up Esperanto.pot. It, it it asks for me to give it some descriptive title, so I could call it um, test. Document, Esperanto, Translation, the author, Clatu. email address, Clato at HackerPublicRadio.org, year 2023. And then it starts with some, it looks like declarative text about like the package version and the PO revision date, the last translator, the language team bunch of kind of like KDE, I wouldn't, I guess I shouldn't say KDE specific, because it's not all KDE specific, but it's kind of leaning in that direction, like the language team, KDE-IL, dash uh, no, I18n-doc, and so on. Uh, so the, the part that I want to focus on right now is the, the, the PO part. So the first line, hash dot tag colon title, well, wait a minute now, title, that was a, that's an XML tag for DocBook, and sure enough, that's exactly what it's talking about. Now it tells you the line number, um, and then it gives you the message ID, which is DocBook document. You remember that it was that was the title I gave my my little sample document, my, my article. So now I've got a message string at msgstr message string, uh, and is blank. It's empty. Just quote quote. That's the part it wants me as the translator to fill in. So I'm going to put Doc documento. Documento, uh, doc book, which I, yeah, I wouldn't want to translate a, a noun like that. Uh, and I guess in 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 a lot of XML, a lot of doc book, um, you would probably find that that was tagged as like um, product name or literal. Some tag just to tell the translator, hey, do not try to translate this. This needs to be exactly as I typed it. I didn't think of that when I was typing my test document. But in real life, that's what you would do. You, you would use, and you you would want to check with your team to see what, what tag they were using to, to indicate that to their translator team. It, it would probably be something like, yeah, product name, I think that's a general purpose docbook tag. That's what we used back at a, a former job. Product name meant do not translate. But you can always also just use literal, or is it literal string? I don't know. One of those two. Obviously, Like I said, I don't do this for, I don't use docbook at work anymore, so my, my coordination efforts are a little bit rusty. Um, I just... I don't have to coordinate with myself, I I just do whatever I want to do. Um, tag, para, that was on line 12. Message ID is hello world. Message, msgstr, message string, is again empty, quote, quote. So I guess I'll type in saluton mondo. I'll save it, I'll close it, and now we've got a translated version of the XML. In a translated file, what good is that to us? Well, possibly nothing. But then again, maybe it's something that we can use in this tool chain, and that is, of course, what we can do. So, po2xml. Uh, Again, I'm going to use help here because I don't remember the orders. Yeah, so po2xml wants the name of my XML file, which is test.xml, and then the translated-po. So that would be esperanto.pot. Hit return. Again, it just spits it out into the terminal, so you'd really want to redirect it in real life. You've got XML version article. So this is the docbook stuff again. Info, title, documento, docbook. Close title, close info section para saluton mondo, close para, close section, close article. so it's the doc book document, almost exactly I mean the 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 uh, spacing and the the line breaks are a little bit different, a little bit ugly to be honest it's It's got like the closing angle bracket after title on the next line. I've seen this before in real life, and i I, I guess this is why um, either way I and mean, it doesn't matter, right XML doesn't care as long as those characters are there it's it's happy so this is the document this is the docbook document that i typed with all the tags that i was using but with different text like translated text how cool is that and how simple is it how simple is it that you literally have a tool to go from your xml to pot and then from from the work from po to xml bang Bang. You're, you're in, you're out, it's done, you've got the translation. So beautiful, so cool. I mean, that is really nice. And I realize it's probably not that big of a deal. Looking at it, it's probably some ridiculously simple said script or something. No, no it is not. <laughs> it is an elf binary, okay. Um, but still, you know, I mean, like, you could imagine doing that with, yep, both of them are elf, elf binaries. You can imagine doing that with, you know, sed or awk or something. Like, it can't be that hard, especially with XML. Because, I mean, XML is so, so, so formal, right? It has, it has, especially, not only XML, it's docbook. So it's a, a defined schema, so you know exactly a list, you have a list of all the valid ta- tags. Like, you know exactly the things you're looking to ignore, and you can extract strings, you know, you you can imagine how you could hack that together. But this exists, it is on the system, and it is really, really nice. So if, by some weird chance, you are writing in DocBook, congratulations, we should talk. Uh And then also... um if you're writing a docbook and need translations done, this is this is the easy way to do that. I mean, as you see, there is no there, There's nothing you need to sort of set up. Like this is done. Like you, you can when you export before before you send your files to your Git server or whatever, run an XML to POT and put that in a translation folder, and people can go there. And use that PO file to create localized versions of your document. And all they have to do is is submit one one file back to you, their language.po or however many files there are. Submit those to you and, and now you've got a translation. It's very, very cool. Highly, highly excited. It's very cool. And I'm, I'm quite excited to have discovered this. I think I've probably used either this or something like it before without really knowing it. Well, not personally used. But I believe I've been in a workflow where this kind of thing was being used. And and this does really make it nice. There are two other files here included. There's split2po and swappo. I don't know what those do. I bet they're really, really useful. I mean, I, could, I guess I could, you know, swappo. Swapo. Uh, Swapo reads the given PO file and swaps the MSG ID and MSG string fields for every message. So it's a translation in the opposite direction. I don't know the use case for that. I'm I'm not sure. And then the other one was, what was it? Um, I don't remember what it was. Swap PO and um, split to PO. Split two po uh creates a po file from two doc book xml files oh that's very useful so oh that is very nice but can you go so if you have two xml and then you you put it into one po file how do you oh you just concatenate the other ones i i, I don't know i don't understand quite the processing oh no it doesn't matter yeah okay so yeah okay cool yeah neat um yeah, so split to PO swap PO POT uh, PO to XML and XML to POT. Super, super useful tools. Very exciting. I wish, um, I wish I, I wish I was doing more translation. I mean, I'm not doing any translation, but what a, what a powerful tool set. I think it's time for coffee. I mean, something that cool deserves a reward of coffee. So let's go get some coffee. We'll come back, finish up the episode. <laughs> As promised, I have a cup of coffee. Hopefully you've had the, the good fortune of getting your own cup of coffee. I saw a very cool coffee brewing method the other day, uh using essentially differential pressures where you I mean it, it's basically a mocha pot, I guess, but it was it was unique because it you put the 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 wa- wa- water in one uh, beaker and coffee grounds in another you connect them through a pipe and in the one that, that has the water that needs to be uh sealed you know air, airtight sort of i mean obviously not the, the 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 hose connecting the two isn't but i mean you know you you want the you want to trap the water otherwise boil the water it sends the water through the hose into the other beaker containing um coffee grounds the hot water mingles with the coffee grounds and therefore um brews the coffee it, it creates you know the coffee it infuses the the, co- the water with coffee then remove the heat from the from the, the the one that was boiling and as it cools it starts to create a vacuum effect and it sucks all of that now coffee from the other container back through the hose into the the original container again so you've you've just You've, you've brewed coffee, or you've infused water with coffee, and then you leave the coffee grounds behind, and you just get the coffee back. It was pretty cool. It was really neat. I'd never seen anything quite, well, I have seen something quite like it. I mean, the idea of moving water from one container to another through heat, that part, yes, I, I completely have seen, but in a in a stovetop espresso maker or a mocha pot, as people apparently call them, um, th- there's that sort of uh, there's a filter, you know, there's a or not a filter, but like a, a there's a grating that that kind of prevents the coffee grounds from going you know going along with the water, and, and that that pressure and everything creates essentially an espresso a stovetop espresso but with this method this differential pressure method that's not what's happening you know you're 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 brewing coffee. I don't. I don't know what that method would be called. It's I don't know hot water and coffee grounds, but then getting it back into the other container uh, in, but by removing the heat. And I don't know how long it took to sort of cool down and create that vacuum effect. I, I didn't. I, I'm not sure how long that takes. But is either way, it was a very cool thing to see. Very very sciencey sort of way of making coffee. I thought. Anyway, let's talk about the next thing on this list which is print manager now for the longest time i did not have a printer in my life but a couple of years ago someone was throwing out a laser jet printer hp thing and i mean they were literally throwing it away so i thought okay i'll take that so i took it brought it home plugged it into the linux of course yeah it just worked and it's a horrible printer i mean it's it's a great printer it's a laser like a laser jet or whatever so it's it's a lot better than like the ink jets and stuff that you know you'd have a cartridge for and it would it would the cartridge would cartridge would um either dry up or get used up in you know three months after you bought the thing and then you would have to buy another cartridge and surprise surprise the cartridge is as much literally as much or more as the printer in the first place so this this has not been that experience. This thing has been just printing and printing and printing. I don't know how long the I mean the person must have had it for ages before me. Maybe they just put a new toner in or something because it just keeps printing. I've never renewed the toner yet. I don't know how. Um, it is a little bit dirty though. It, it like it 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 prints. It's a little bit messy, uh, and I'm assuming that's probably a signal that the toner needs replacing, but I just print so rarely and for such casual purposes that I just haven't bothered. Anyway, exciting thing there is that I have a printer, so I can print stuff on the off chance that I need something printed, which sometimes you do. You know, government organizations sometimes want paper. Uh, people sometimes want paper. Uh, so yeah, they, that's I've got a printer, and so I, I actually utilize little conveniences like print management systems. And if you look in the system tray of your KDE, of your plasma desktop, you may see somewhere, you might have to look around for it, Uh, and it may not be there if you don't have a printer connected, but if you do have a printer connected and you look around, you may find a little widget for printers. If you click on that, you have just, you are are now experiencing the print manager. That is exactly what the print manager is. Now, in my case, I have HP underscore laserjet underscore P 2015 underscore red which is a name the underscore red is the name that I gave it because it is sitting next to a red wall and so that was kind of like the location of that printer more or less in the string just on the off chance that i got another hp LaserJet p215 i guess i don't know 2015 i don't know why i did that but i for that's that's the the name next to it there's a pause printing button which i mean it's not printing now so it doesn't really matter but i could pause it i'm not going to for fear of confusing the printer I hate printers. Uh, It seems that no matter what you do, they always get confused and think that they should be paused, and then you have to go restart the queue and all that other nonsense. So I'm not going to touch it, but there there it is. Now, there are a couple of different Uh, binaries uh, included with this package. I mean, there is a library called libkcupslib.so, and there's a kcm-printer-manager.so. So So kcm, we know that, uh, kde-configuration-module-manager, manager manager, and a couple of different binaries. So there's configure-printer, kde-add-printer, and kde-print-q. I probably can't remember all those. So I'm just going to type in configure-printer. It looks like PM.configure.printer, no printer was specified. Arguments, it wants a printer to be configured. So that's probably probably looking for literally like HP underscore, what did I say? jet underscore P2015 underscore red. Yeah, that that's that's correct. Uh, and then that brings up a configure printer GUI window. Right now it's under modify printer because that printer did exist. Uh, and so it's showing me the description the location the connection type this is USB because my work uh, my my desktop Serves as the uh, essentially as the print server. If my workstation's not on, then the printer is not available to anyone else in the house. And then the driver: current HP LaserJet P2015 series PCL3 HP Cups 3.20.5. That's the driver that it's using right now. There's printer options. Media size is A4 by default. What what tray it prints out of. Output mode and so on, banners and policies um, and 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 all that stuff. I'm going to hit cancel because I don't actually want to change that. So that's a little GUI configurator, which is quite nice. And then you've got KDE Add Printer and KDE Print Queue. All of this stuff is also pretty much in uh, if you type in print, then you get a, what is it? Printer settings. Yeah. Printer settings. But is this, is this the KDE one? I don't think it is. No, that's not the, no, that's the wrong one. Sorry. Print printers, just printers. That's what it's called. Printers there we go okay printers that opens up the system settings to the printer uh, section and then you can click add printer you can go into uh configuring that printer specifically which is exactly that's the configure printer uh gui that you that we saw earlier so yeah all of this stuff is is um available from the system settings because again KCM printer module Uh, and it's it's pretty simple really yeah it's pretty pretty straightforward I I have had nothing but great success, great experiences with printers on, on Linux. I say nothing but great experiences. Meaning I've had I've had good experiences with printers on Linux that compares to my good experiences with printers on other systems. So there have been bad experiences. You know, there have been times where it, it doesn't it's not as straightforward as it should be to, to add that printer or whatever. But I mean in general, if if it's if it's, you know, I don't know, seven hours out of 10 printers, then when I go to add them to my system, they just add. They just get added. Now, I understand I'm in a bubble. I live in a bubble. I live in my little world. You know, I, I might be going to all the right places. In in your life, you might be going to all the wrong places. You might have drawn the unlucky printer card, and you, you just keep getting the bad ones, Um, and and my luck might change. Who knows? But in my experience so far, adding printers has been really really simple on linux you just go to system settings go to printers and you add the printer now sometimes there's some confusion about like well wh- what driver to use what wh- where where is that located like how do i find that and and in even in those cases where it's kind of like uh-oh panic attack like what how ha- ha- it's not just adding, um, then, then you know, a quick search online brings me to like the PPD file uh, from the vendor, or it brings me to the driver from the vendor, or it brings me to, or it reminds me to install uh, Fumatic or GhostScript or something like that to, to magically give myself all those other drivers. So it, it, I've just, I've had really, really I've had a a great experience with adding printers to Linux. And I remember that that's not always the case on other systems. Like, I, I have definitely... Had experiences setting up printers. I don't know if I've told this story before, but back in uh, my my brief university days before I dropped out of university because it's a waste of money, um, I, I to make money, I was I was selling. I was I was a computer repair person basically. I I just posted notices in like grocery stores, you know, computer help, call this guy, and people would call me. And nine times out of ten, it seems like it was to set up a new printer. Eh. Maybe five times out of 10. No, actually nine times out of 10. And then five times out of 10, there was also a new computer to be set up along with that new printer. That was a big deal. So I, I've set up a lot of printers and, and I, I once I started getting into Unix specifically, I discovered CUPS and then I became like the guy in my local area who could actually get your printer networked. Like, that was a big deal for me. That was a top seller. Like, people would call me specifically because their friend had told them that I'd done something so that their printer just you could just print from anywhere in the house and that was a big deal like that was a huge deal I, I don't even know that i knew what i was doing like looking back i'm just like how did i know how to do all that stuff but i did it and it worked so i guess i must have um and and I again it's probably a lot of dumb luck as well you know probably got got the right set of printers at sort of the right development time on the right couple of home routers or, or the, the the right setup you know just I'm sure there was a lot of just kind of like coincidental sort of convergences but it it was it was good. So I feel like I've done a lot of setting up of printers and and on some operating systems it's not easy. Like it really isn't. It's it's not an easy thing. Uh I know that Windows uh, I think if memory serves would very frequently sort of like try to Try to second guess you, try to get it done for you, but then it would always inevitably fail. I remember that being a problem all the time. Like it would, it would just somehow like identify what you were trying to do, and then it would try to do it for you, and it would fail every single time. And it just used to frustrate pre- people so much. And and then you know the the, the printers would have a, a disc with them that would have the driver on it, but it would be like an out of date driver, or it'd be a driver with a bunch of like bloatware included on the cd for some weird reason it have its own custom application where you'd have to configure the thing i mean it was phenomenal and then of course mac os like you've got a whole other pr- set of problems because no one was writing drivers for that at, 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 for ages like literally when mac os 10 started like there were no printer drivers it was a huge problem for the print industry people were outraged and and eventually it got better and then apple just bought cups they they just purchased the solution by by purchasing well employing the developer of cups and it works and it works for linux just as well that's the beauty of it now i'm not going to say that printers have, have seen the light and they've all they've all fixed the, the the problem that is modern printers because they haven't they're they're horrible they're probably getting worse every day they they try to out compute the computer it's horrible. It's it's a terrible miserable experience and I hate home printing. I really do. If I could just get I mean I I I'm almost away from it. Like I do have a printer like I said because I got it out of the trash. But um you know the, the the times that I don't have to print far far exceed the times that I do have to print. And and it's it's through things like mobile devices, ebook reader, uh e e-ink notepad, things like that where you don't have to print you just send it to a device and then you have it and it it's good enough so lots of reasons to avoid printers but if you're doing a printer setup on linux especially on on plasma desktop just go to add printer and 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 add that printer see what happens it may well just work And if not, you might have to fish around a little bit for a PPD. And it's just so nice. Could it be better? Yeah, it could be better. It could totally be better. Like, finding a network printer still is a complex complex thing like you still have to know where to look for that printer on the network you have to choose a protocol you're going to go IPP or are you going to go like HTTP or, or 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 Samba or how are you going to get to that printer that that's still not a fun experience it's, it's still easier to just plug it in through through USB sharing that printer across your network that should be easier that should be more straightforward you know there are lots of little things that could be better but it 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 is for for the basics like you go out and buy a printer add it to linux it's a great experience many many times it, it's a very good experience if not more often than then at least as often as you having a bad experience So I would, you know, try to add that printer, see what happens. Don't, don't fiddle around with cups yet. Just go to add printer and, and see if it, if it, if it connects. And, you know, certainly I would, I would try to, I would connect a printer to USB first, do a test print, make sure that it works and then go out, out. To the network uh, you know then then try the the, the the fancier setups but yeah very very comfortable very happy with with the state of printing on on linux or at least as happy as i'm going to be with the state of printing in general okay next up prison i don't know how to interact with this this is a, a barcode api it's a it's a cute thing it's a cute based uh, api to produce qr code Barcodes and dot matrix barcodes, which I assume dot matrix must be the lines that you see, like at the grocery store, like on the back of the boxes that you buy or something. I'm assuming that's a bar, a a, a dot matrix barcode. So yeah, this is all just built in uh, to Cute, apparently. Although it's in the KDE package set, so I guess it's not. It it isn't Cute. It's KDE, but it does say it's a Cute API to produce these things. Now this is a a compiled library, libprisonquickplugin.so and some header files i don't know how to use this i don't know what i would do with it but there it is that's that's the that's what prison is it's not a very spectacular um ending for this episode uh really is there something is there a quick win pulse audio cute that is not a quick win okay we'll we'll just actually there are you know what though there are just a couple there's only two more in the p section and then we're on to q well, that's too much to resist. Okay, I guess we have to do it then. So Pulse Audio Qt is, it, it's the Plasma Desktop, the KDE project, bringing, as far as I know, Pulse Audio to, to Cute. I mean, it's kind of a, a big deal unless I'm over, unless I'm reading too much into it, but I, it, Feels to me like without this, the Qt um, framework wouldn't be interacting with Pulse Audio. That's what it sounds to me like, and I, I don't have confirmation on that. I haven't looked it up. I haven't looked into trying to interface with Pulse Audio from just sort of raw cute. So I, I could be wrong, but again, sounds like to me like either either that's not the case or this just has you know more more functionality maybe what kind of functionality does this have well it's a bunch of header files but there are things like card card port client device models module port uh, server sync sync input source source output stream stream restore and so on so these are important concepts to pulse audio none of which i can i can uh keep straight i i can i never forget i can never remember. I think sync is essentially a thing that you are sending sound out of, I think, and then uh, uh, source is a thing that is generating sound but i th- i believe that the problem in pulse audio or the the problem that pulse audio terminology is trying to solve is that when you say oh sound is you know is this the sound in is this the sound output well, what does that mean because to to some people a sound sound output might mean the software that is that you have pressed a a, a software based play button and so now it is it is generating essentially a stream of audio data that you want to send somewhere, is that audio output? Well, to the user, no, that's not audio output. That's just the media player. And then there's speakers that is going to interface with their ears. That is the audio output to them. So I think to Pulse Audio, they've chosen to just go with new terminology and call like your speakers, the thing that's going to be producing sound waves for your human ears. I believe that's the sync. And then the media player would be the uh, server, or maybe the source, or maybe both, I don't know. No, it would be the source. Server, I'm sure, is is PulseAudio itself. So anyway, those are all include files within KDE Framework 5. There are some CMake files to help compile all that stuff, and then there's a library, libkf5pulseaudio.qt.so. So So if you want your application to interact with PulseAudio, this would be something to look at, and like I say, I don't know. Maybe there's some basic. I guess I could even look just cute. Uh, cute five pulse audio. Let's just do a quick search for that and see what happens. Audio overview in cute multimedia. So these are the documentation. Uh, this is the documentation rather. Uh, and I'm going to just do a find pulse. I am not seeing pulse. Yeah, I don't know. I'm. I mean, I could be wrong. This is an impromptu search happening live in front of you and I'm I kind of apologize for that but um I mean not enough to stop and delete this part I guess but yeah I mean this is interesting cuz yeah so I do see there is a yep okay there are plugins for this all right we're we're good Q audio system plugin class uh that is a Q comes with plugins for windows win mm and wasapi and linux Alsa and Pulse Audio, Mac OS, iOS, Core Audio, Android, OpenSL ES, and QNX. So there are plugins for Qt that send uh, audio to various, let's call them uh, SDKs, and... Or I guess you could say that cute was the SDK. Either way, whatever. There are plugins, so it could happen. I'm, I'm going to assume, though, that this KDE framework thing offers better support or maybe easier to interface with support. Like, it may w- literally work just as well, but maybe it's easier to deal with the KDE framework one or something like that. So, yeah, it's interesting. I guess not quite as essential as I was assuming from, from it sort of from its existence but um good to know about i'm sure i mean i'm sure it's it's got it's got a purpose wait a minute purpose that's the next package on our list and it's the last package in the p section of kde so after this next episode we'll start with the cues so this is purpose and it offers actions for a specific purpose Brilliant. I love it. This framework offers the possibility to create integrated services and actions on any application without having to implement them specifically. Purpose offers the mechanisms to list different alternatives to execute given a requested action type, and will facilitate components so that all the plugins can receive all the information they need. Kind of sounds, um, kind of too good to be true, to be honest. Um... And yet, that's what it says. So it is a um, bunch of header files and uh, quite quite a few um, libraries. Things like barcode plugin, Bluetooth plugin, email plugin, image imager plugin. You know, imgur that one. Uh, KDE Connect plugin, KDE Connect SMS plugin, PasteBin plugin, Fabricator plugin, Save As plugin. Telegram plugin, Twitter plugin, and, and more. Though I didn't even list all of them. So that's a lot of plugins. It's a lot of libraries. And um, I mean, it sounds to me like it is, um, it must be what it says it is. I mean, it's a framework to make sure that services can be integrated into the Plasma desktop, but, but not really there's no it sounds like these are it's almost like a messaging service or a um well yeah like a messenger um what are are they called like rabbit mq and things like that um you know it's like a a message stream it it gets the signal that you want it to get and then it sorts out what it needs to for what actually needs to know about that signal so it's kind of an it's almost like an ingest um like a you know um A load balancer, an ingest engine, whatever they're called. Uh, So, yeah, you've got signals. Something needs to deal with them. But we don't want to implement, like, the thing to deal with it. We just want to implement a listener to receive that signal and then make sure that it goes to the place that that needs to get that signal. That's what it sounds to me like without me really getting into it um, any more than I just have because that's really... That's about as much time as I want to dedicate to that. Sounds interesting. Sounds good. Sounds great. Uh, It kind of makes you wonder how hard or how easy it is to implement this. Because, I mean, it almost sounds as simple as, like, UDev or something. You know? I mean, it's kind of not that big of a deal as long as you know what to listen for. This by the way, sort of r- brings to mind this and that Pulse audio plugin, actually. This brings to mind what w- one of those maybe undersold things, or the, the, the things, one of the many things I take for granted within sort of the KDE space and, and just open source in general, I guess. But I mean, I guess specifically in KDE, is that cute underpinning the the cute framework i i'm sure i've probably said this before but i mean the cute framework if kde didn't exist and that would be a bad thing i i want kde to continue to exist but if it didn't exist cute would be really i mean it, it's still an important thing like it's a it's a vital component i think of open source gui development cute is just such a powerful framework and I don't know that you can really appreciate it without sort of experiencing it from the development side and even then it's hard to appreciate sometimes because it's hard it's not easy as I've said many times before programming is not easy it is a it is a difficult thing to wrap your head around and then once you've got your head mostly wrapped around it, it's still hard to implement there's just a Bunch of moving parts, lots of components that you have to stick together, but Cute really for for everything that it is, it's it's this big package of of functional functioning uh, code parts that you can you can smash them together and then you can compile them and you can put them on all kinds of systems. I mean, as we saw with that pulse audio thing, or at least hinting towards it, there's a plugin in Cute that ensures that you've got sound it's going to interface with the primary inter, you know the primary uh targets on, on on all of the the platforms that it supports and it supports them all i mean the the cross platformedness of cute is no joke like it is it is a serious real thing and, and it is not a hack it is something that exists and it's something that's, at least still it it, it it's pretty integral into into into, into the into the framework, like they're very serious about it, and it comes through when you're using it because it is just as easy as it can be to just send out your application on a bunch of uh, computers. Cute, cute gets really, really close to making it as easy as it possibly could be. In my humble opinion, Java is even easier and more of a guarantee. I highly recommend it. But but cute, really, really good. Really, really nice. And then you got KDE e on top of that. So the foundation is is so so important and and that is cute and it's important to kind of remember that and the the reason I'm thinking about that is just because of the of of that ability of cute to just abstract stuff you know it, there are so there's so much going on in a computer there's so much input output so many different possibilities cute just makes it as as easy as it can be to not have to worry about that you'd be amazed at how how many SDKs and how many components you need to obtain to talk to a a closed non-open source operating system whereas with cute it's got most of that figured out for you like the 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 load cute takes off of your shoulders just to get started on a computer developing on a computer is huge just alone that much is just it's huge i mean on linux we take it for granted because it's like yeah cute whatever It, it interfaces with my computer yeah i mean you know that's what that's what development toolkits on linux do on other platforms it's not like that you like you have to go through you have to jump through hoops to be able to develop for that platform cute makes it so simple compared to for instance going down the like the official path of you know like becoming a developer for that platform blah 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 don't bother just use cute or java like i say um but yeah cute and then kde on top of it that that dedication to, to to taking care of stuff for the programmer, I really, really feel strongly—not authoritatively, but strongly—that that's kind of the that's the direction programming really needs to go in. Is where where at least on some level there's a there's a there's a level for people to be able to program and customize their environment and program their computer and make their computer work in the way that they want it to work that needs to be something people can do and if you have to worry about which audio library you're interfacing with to play your little music then that's that's too much abstract that away from me i don't care just make it play the sound i'm i'm all i want is to design my little widget with a play button on it and that's the kind of thing that cute and kde really really make more more possible than you know other, th- other options. And it comes through in things like the Pulse Audio plugin or the Pulse Audio library and the Purpose library where you don't have to worry about those things anymore because these frameworks have figured that out for you, and you're just left with sort of the, the the fun bits, the fun parts. Super important, and I think ingrained in the culture of, of this side of, of Linux development, and I just love it. That's the P section of the KDE, so I'll just queue up the Q section for next episode. Thanks for listening.